Well, good morning. Um, I did uh, sneak in, uh, climb the stairs while, while you were praying because it, would, it took me a while. So um, I ran a marathon yesterday for the first time, and so um, yeah, I'm, I'm sore. So um, I'm not going to move, which I never do anyway. I'm, uh, I'm the stationary dude that just kind of stands here the whole time. I know some guys preach and they wander. I don't do that anyway, so this is helpful for me. So um, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 is where we are today. Uh, Jesus is greater than priests is our title. Uh, let me pray as we get started. God, thank you for our time, opportunity to study your word here at chapter 4 of Hebrews. God, help us, guide us, teach us, um, mold and shape us, do your work in and through us uh, this morning. I pray your Holy Spirit would have the freedom to work in and through each one of our souls and hearts. And God, as we uh, consider you and consider what you are doing even right now uh, in the midst of our hardships and suffering and trials, and temptations, and uh, we pray, God, that you would um, open our eyes to see you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, we spent the last two times together in Hebrews chapter 4 uh, on the topic of rest. And, uh, and this rest we talked about as a, a spiritual rest, a rest that involves the ability to lay down our own efforts of what we called self-justification, uh, uh, both in the world and in the church, and just rest in Jesus' finished work. It's a rest where we, we, we who are weighed down by the fear of man, weighed down by the fear of disappointment, the fear of missing out, the fear of not doing enough, go to Jesus as he says, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. I had a couple people respond there. Good. All right. Track it with me. Good. Uh, as the hymn writer once said, we go to Jesus to lay our deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, and stand in him alone, wondrously complete. And so the writer has told this small church 2,000 years ago, right in the middle of ancient Rome, and is talking to us today through these pages to strive to enter this rest, to run hard after the gospel and to appropriate the story of God into our lives. But as we saw last week, the verses, two verses we looked at last week, um, it can be a little scary um, to come to Jesus this way because we find that he is a living God that we come to, not a, a dead religion. And this living God has a sword in his hand, a double-edged sword, and he's going to cut us. Right, we talked about conviction last week. He's going to, to cut us all the way to the bottom of our soul. He's going to expose the things that are down there, the, our fears and our unbelief. And, but that, that, that cut, that cut that he, he brings, the conviction he brings is that he might heal us is the process. And so the picture we're left with from last week is that we are, as it were, on the operating table of God, and he, he's cut us open. And we're there before him, and he proceeds to cut deep into our souls. And you can imagine uh, the thoughts that the readers would have had at this time, and maybe the thoughts that you've had, and that is, you know, I, I know he's a good surgeon, and I know that, you know, Jesus means well, but I'm a little delicate here. I'm a little tender, I've been cut, and this unearthing of my sin is really, really hard. How is he going to handle me? What if he finds stuff he doesn't like down deep in there? Is he going to run to? Remember, everybody had run away from them. They lost friends. They lost family. They lost their jobs, their homes because of their commitment to Christ. And so that was a very sensitive subject. That's why that comes up over and over and over again in Hebrews 13. And while he'll end chapter 13 at the end of the book and say that Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. It was a big deal to them because they had faced a great amount of abandonment. And they're wondering, you know, they talk about, he, he is a judge, we understand that. Is he going to cast me out because of the things that he finds deep down in my soul? 
And the answers okay, to those questions are vitally important because the answer to those questions will tell me if I'm going to fight him or if I'm going to lay still and let him do his work, right? So the answer of how is he going to handle me, who he is, not just what he does, is vitally important for how I respond to the process that God takes me through with conviction and repentance and forgiveness and healing. So it's into these questions that the writer of Hebrews speaks. And he's going to tell us that Jesus, as it were, has a, he's dual licensed here. He, he's a surgeon, and at the same time, he's a priest. He has a medical license and a clergy license, as it were. And he is a priest like we've never seen before, nor has anyone in the world ever seen before. He's better than any priest that was ever found in the Old Testament. He is better than any priest the Jewish religion had, had, had at the time, and he's better than any religion at the time. He's better and greater than any religious leader today, any pastor, any priest, any guru of all time. And he is worth surrendering your heart and soul and life to. And so what we will discover about Jesus as this kind of surgeon priest, okay, cuts and yet heals, is that he, three things. He's gonna, he recognizes us, he sympathizes with us, and he empathizes with us. That'll be our three points this morning. Number one, he recognizes us. Verse 14 says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Now that, compared to the verses 12 and 13 prior to this, is a breath of fresh air. I mean, we, here we are, we're raw, we're exposed, we're cut, and the writer points us to, the, to Jesus, our great high priest. And we'll talk a lot about that role next week in chapter 5. But it's important to know what really that whole, what that symbolizes. The, the, the whole thing about Christ's priest, high priest ministry is the fact that he has ascended. It talks about his ascension. And it says here, he went through the heavens. Notice the language here. I know I'm being picky on it, but look at it. He, he went through the heavens, not into the heavens. Okay? We have rockets. right? We send rockets into the heavens, but never through the heavens. Jesus goes through them, okay? That means he is outside of our space-time continuum. I don't even know what that means, but it sounded intelligent to share that. So, Now, I doubt most of you have been taught a lot about Jesus' ascension, right? You focus a lot on the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and the return of Jesus, but the ascension is a piece that we're missing. We don't focus a lot on, which I love about Hebrews because it's the book that focuses on it more than any other book in the New Testament. Matter of fact, you take all the lessons taught on the ascension of Christ, you probably can only think of one, probably Acts chapter 1. You're like, oh, that's where it happened. That's about all I've heard about it. And you take all of everything that's been taught, it's, it's greater amounts of it in the book of Hebrews. And so, and it's crucial. It's absolutely crucial for, for these guys who are reading this letter for the first time, and it's crucial for us. And the reason it's important is because the ascension of Jesus led to the exaltation of Jesus and the high priestly ministry of Jesus. Much of Hebrews chapter 1 focused on the ascension and exaltation of Jesus. As a matter of fact, every chapter in Hebrews mentions and talks about the ascension and the subsequent exaltation of Jesus. Talks about it all the time. Why? Because these guys need to know, and you say, what's so important about it? What you needed to know, what they needed to know was that Jesus wasn't taking time off the job, right? He did his work. He ascended. He's going to come back and do some work, but right now it's all up to me. Right? That, that's kind of the gap in time we can kind of think about. But the ascension tells us and the exaltation tells us that he's at work right now. He didn't go on vacation. 
He ascended and assumed the position of king where he is working right now and bringing his kingdom to bear on the world through his people. He has a present ministry, not just a past ministry. Much of Paul's writings, for example, and Paul wrote uh, 12 of the New Testament epistles here, and he would, he would speak a lot about the past ministry of Jesus, which is great, right? The justification by faith, the suffering and death of Jesus. You can go through those books. You can go to Colossians and Philippians and Corinthians, and you can see a lot of that. But the writer of Hebrews chooses to focus more on Jesus' present ministry, what he's accomplishing right now. And like we said last week, this current ministry is one that he, he's in, he does over time and with processes. Like that we talked about last week, that grape seed to wine, it takes time, and that's the way God works. He could turn water into wine and turn the world into his kingdom and rule with an iron fist if he wanted to right now. He could do that. But it's a process he has us in, right? For his glory, our good. In theology, we call this process, this work currently, we call this sanctification, it's like part two of the, of the whole salvation that God has for us. We have justification. We're declared right by God uh, through faith. You can read that in Romans, Galatians, places like that. And then we have a current process of sanctification. What's that? Being made more like Jesus every day. God's at work chiseling away, cutting away to make us look like Jesus to eventually the, the last part of that is glorification. When we're, when we're with God, when we're on a new heavens and a new earth with Christ, we have new bodies, and, and that sin is gone and done away with. That's the process. And here, he focuses on that second piece, sanctification. So what value is there in the ascension and exaltation of Christ to our daily lives? Well, it's actually very personal. It means we're not left on the table. Okay? We're not left raw, cut exposed Jesus still working this idea was much in doubt by the disciples even uh, who had walked with Jesus for three years remember in Acts chapter 1 the one place I told you you kind of think about when you think about the ascension they were afraid they were terrified right listen to Acts chapter 1 verses 9 through 11 when he had said these things speaking of Jesus as they the disciples were looking on he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight and while they were gazing to heaven as he went behold two men stood by them in white robes and said men of Galilee why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And so you can imagine the scene. The disciples are kind of looking up dumbfounded. Uh, they, they're trying to figure out what's going to happen now. He's gone. Like we've been with him this whole time. He just took off. And they're probably you know, kind of like a, a child who lost their favorite toy or a child being dropped off for the first day of school. You know, they felt alone, felt abandoned, felt, felt left. Uh, then a, a bunch of angels appear, disciples, looking up with them and kind of rebukes them basically and says, hey, stop looking up at the sky, get to work. He's commissioned you, he's called you, now you need to go. No doubt the uh, doubts were probably running through the mind of the disciples as to their ability to carry out such a mission. It was listed in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. After all, they had just failed miserably. If you remember the story, they had failed miserably a few weeks uh, prior to that part and had abandoned Jesus at his at his greatest time of greatest need, which is how the writer of Hebrews feel about their own, like, their own failures. But if you read the rest of Acts, you'll notice that the disciples got the message, right? They got the message. We're here today because <laughs> the disciples got the message, and they went out, and they planted churches, and they preached the gospel, and they set the world on fire. What was it about the ascension of Jesus that motivated them? What was it about the ascension that causes us to move closer to Jesus and not fight his work in our life and instead rest in him? And the answer is, again, the ascension led to the installation of not just Jesus as king, 
but as a high priest. And the readers needed to see this ministry of Jesus so that they would endure, so that they would press on, so they would have hope. And we need to see that and we need to feel that. You say, what was the big deal about the high priest anyway? Who is this guy? Well, basically, he, we would say the high priest was the most interesting man in the world, okay? He was, he was the man of the Old Testament, okay? He was the guy that everybody looked to in, in, in Israel. He was responsible for carrying the sins of Israel, just one dude all by himself, to carry the sins of Israel into the presence of God to ask forgiveness. So in essence, high priest, we could say, was a mediator between God and man. The high priest was one who goes in and pleads your case, as it were. Think of it in terms of, of the law. The high priest, as it were, was, was, was kind of defending the people. That's kind of what Jesus' ministry is like. He's like a, another kind of another license here. He's like a defense attorney, okay? He's, he's there arguing, recognizing us as his own. He defends us judicially. He's like a judge in that way. He de- defends us. But who, who is he defending us from? Revelation 12.10 says, I heard a voice in heaven saying, now the salvation, the power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them, when? Day and night. That's all the time, okay? All the time. So right now, God is recognizing you who have committed your life to Jesus. He's recognizing you as his son or his daughter. And get this, there are no adjectives in his defense. Satan is up there calling out all of your stuff, all the stuff you've got hidden, all the stuff that no one knows about, right? He sees you. He sees what God is doing. He sees the cuts, and he sees what's been opened up, and he sees what's deep inside from what God is bringing to the surface. And Satan, as it were, is making a list, and he's checking it twice, and you're, you're naughty and not nice, okay? Um, that's kind of what he sees. And Jesus isn't trying to do some spin work up there. Okay, he's not trying to spin it and be like, oh, you know, but she's really trying. Or he's not really that bad. Again, he's not using any adjectives in his defense of you. Okay? You are not a bad son or a good son. You're not a decent daughter or a dysfunctional daughter. You're not even a piece of work to Jesus. Okay? He is, there's, his statement to your soul is, you are my son or you are my daughter. Again, no adjectives in the front. Nothing, nothing described. It's just that's who you are. Why does he do, how is he able to do that? Why is he not arguing your, your merit? Because he's arguing his merit, okay? He's arguing his blood, what he died for, what he has done. Listen to Revelation 1.5. Jesus Christ, he calls him the faithful witness. Witness of what? Of himself, of what he has done for us. 1 John 2, 1 through 2, says we have an advocate. There's our defense attorney language. With the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, he is the propitiation for our sins. You're like, that's a word I don't know. It means to satisfy the wrath of God. It's been complete. Jesus drank every drop. Okay, there's not a drop left for you to drink. If you're in Christ, he is absorbed and taken every bit of that against himself. Hebrews 7.25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The writer of Hebrews says, in light of this, that we are to hold fast our confession. You see that language? Hold fast. What is the confession we're making? What confession are we holding on to? What's our creed? It's the confession that though we are depraved, yet Jesus has redeemed us. It's the confession that though we were lost, we're what? We're found. It's the confession that though we are great sinners, Christ is a great Savior. It's the confession that though we are broken, Jesus is at work and he's fixing, right? It's the confession that though we are cut, Jesus is healing. 
It's the confession of the gospel that we find rest because it's the only confession that matters. And Jesus' opinion of us is the only opinion that ultimately matters. That goes for Satan's opinion, your neighbor's opinion, your coworker's opinion, your classmate's opinion, even your in-law's opinion, okay? It, it, it trumps all of them, okay? What, who you are in Christ is what matters more than anything else. But he does more than that. Number two, he not just recognizes us as his own, he also sympathizes with us. This is so good. Verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, when Jesus recognizes us as his, as his own from his throne, he is, as it were, defending us. He's dealing with us almost, you could say, in a, a judicial level, maybe even a rational level. Know that, that the truth is he is mine, she is mine, right? But when, we, when it says Jesus sympathizes with us, he's feeling something. We don't have a God who just sees us and does things for us. He also feels for us and with us. To sympathize is a word used, that the word is used of a bond similar to a mother's feeling for her children. It's to share the experience of another emotionally. You know what sympathy's like. You've felt it before, right? You feel it when you walk or drive the streets of downtown Indy and you see brokenness, right? You feel it when you maybe watch a film or, or a show with someone struggling with life and you feel for them. You feel, it, you feel it when you maybe watch or read the news and you see what's happening in the world and the brokenness and the wars and all the things that are happening. You feel that, right? You feel something for that. You feel it with family or friends who are struggling. A heart aches when we see a picture of a, a starving child or see pictures of bodies torn from war. It moves us. And that's what we're getting at here with the idea of Jesus towards us. So when we sympathize with people, we feel for them. If they are suffering, we feel their pain. If they are angry, we feel their rage. Now think about for a moment Jesus' emotional capacity. He sympathizes with, it says here, our weaknesses. That's a very broad term. It means he has feelings of sorrow with our pain. Feelings of sadness with our struggles. Feelings of grief grief with our losses. But he also has feelings of anger and vengeance with, when the injustices are occurring to his children. Just read the Psalms. He feels. He feels for all of his children, corporately yet individually. And he has the capacity, get this, he has the capacity to hold all of that for every single child of his. To hold all of it. He doesn't reach a limit where it's like, okay, I can't handle it anymore. You ever reached that limit before with somebody? You ever been with somebody you love or somebody you care about? And you're like, I just can't, I can't do this anymore. I can't hold this anymore. It's just too much. He, he never says that. I don't know about you, but I have a certain limit, right, to the amount of emotional investment that I can give. Most people who have been wounded in their past or experienced great amounts of trauma or injustice have a less ability in many ways to sympathize because of the pain they've experienced, unless it's of something that they've been through themselves. But otherwise, their, their, empathy, their sympathy level is, is not as high. But can you imagine that Jesus, though wounded and having the greatest amount of injustices occur against him than anyone in the history of the world, actually sympathizes more than anyone in the history of the world? Why? Because he's eternally and infinitely sympathetic. And because he's 100% God while being 100% man, he doesn't have a limit, right? He's God, so he can hold all of it. 
but he's human so he can feel it. Like, isn't that crazy? I mean, that's amazing. You're talking about, like, doctrine and how practical it is. You're like, well, I mean, the deity of Christ, humanity. You're like, what's that mean? It means, it means the world here, right? He can, he, can, he can sympathize humanly, but he can hold it all because he's God. This is what makes him the ultimate and true and greater high priest. That's why the writer talks about that. For no mere human priest or pastor or anyone could feel the pain of all the children of God, but Jesus can and does. Now, some theologians, I'm going to talk about theology for a second. Some theologians argue that, that God doesn't have any emotions. Jesus doesn't have any emotions. That all the talk of Jesus' sympathy is really just God's way of trying to communicate to us in ways we can understand. He doesn't, because he's sovereign, therefore he can't have these emotions. We call this, and then I'm going to put the word on the screen because it's a good Scrabble word for you, okay? Anthropomorphisms, okay? That's what we call that. It's, it's, it's God kind of accommodating us, kind of coming down to our level to communicate with us something so we can kind of try to understand him, yet he doesn't really have emotions. It's an old actually an old Greek idea about God, but it's not biblical in any way. Our God does feel. I I don't know how all that works, but he feels. And yet, he's still sovereign, and he's still in control of all things. Can't explain explain all of that, but I can say that when he says Jesus sympathizes with, with us, it means he emotionally gathers our pain to himself and feels it. Now think about how shocking this would be back in that culture, okay? You gotta put yourself back into a world 2,000 years ago to hear this. The Jews believed that God was holy, which he is. And their concept of holiness was that he was completely different and did not share our experiences. In fact, they would say he was incapable of sharing in our experiences because he's God. He's completely different from us. The Stoics, kind of Greek, Greek philosophers at the time, believed God's primary attribute was one they called apatheia. Now, you can see that word and come up with some English from that, right? Apathetic. God was, they believed God was apathetic. He, he had an inability to feel anything at all. They reasoned that if God could feel, he could be controlled by others, right? If God could feel, then he could be controlled by others. He can't be God anymore because he's going to go with whatever people are feeling kind of thing. And there was another school of thought, the Epicureans. They held that God lived, gods lived in perfect happiness, feeling joy in what they called the inter. Mundia, okay, that's what they called this. This was the, the, the space between the worlds. The gods lived in the space between the world, and they didn't even care what was going on down here. I think a lot of your Greek mythology is this kind of stuff, right? You know, they kind of just didn't even care what was going on down here unless it helped them somehow. And so that was kind of the word. So in that world, Jews had their, their different gods. Stoics had their feelingless god. Epicureans had their detached gods. And into that world came Jesus, blew the lid off of the box that people were trying to put God into. He was God, and the God who who is holy yet loving, distant yet near, angry yet weeping, right? All of those things. His sympathy is so deep that when we feel pain, he feels the pain too. Now, I'm not, I want to get Jay to kind of explain this to me, but I'm going to just kind of try to explain it myself. I'm not a musician here, but there's this thing called sympathetic resonance, okay? Maybe if you're a musician, you know what this is. I had to look this up. It's when two pianos that are in tune are in the same room, and a note is struck on one will result in another resonating that note too. Okay, it's like the sound waves resonating with each other. They're in tune with each other. And, and that's kind of the idea here. It's the idea, the same way Jesus, and again, it's, it's kind of hard to even imagine this, but in the same way Jesus' high priestly body, he has a body now. He ascended with a body. That's important. 
His high priestly body in heaven has sympathetic resonance with our bodies when they are struck, when they hurt, and when they suffer. And when a cord is struck of, in the weakness of our human body, it resonates with his. There is no note of human experience that does not play on Jesus' exalted body. Every loss you suffer, every pain you experience, Jesus feels that. He feels every melody, every dirge, every minor key, every major key. He's not disinterested. He's not cold. He's not unaffected by what you're going through. This just brings it to a whole other level. Yeah, I think God cares. This is a whole other level, isn't it? One more thing about Jesus and his sympathy in the text. Notice he didn't and does not sin. This, this is fascinating. Most of, our, most of the time, our sympathy is increased when we share the struggle. For example, if, if you're a recovering alcoholic, you feel a great deal of sympathy for the addict. Because why? Because you've been there. Right? I've, I've walked that road. I, I've been in those shoes. I know what it's like. I have a greater amount of empathy, a greater amount of sympathy for that person. But you think about Jesus. Jesus never gave in to sin yet has greater sympathy for us. How can he be that sympathetic if he's never gone through it? Okay, so we can go back to chapter 2. Remember we talked about this in chapter 2. Remember I talked about the illustration there about Jesus' humanity, being tempted every way as we are yet without sin. I said, pretend you're in a, a giant wind tunnel. Remember that illustration? Big wind tunnel. And, uh, and we're all trying our best to stand up, and some guy with a maniacal laugh in the back is turning it up, right? And he's just kind of cranking up the speed. And slowly but surely, we're all starting to topple over, being attached to the back wall. And there's a few of us still holding on to the edge of the pews. The rest of us are like plastered back here in the back, taking out all the instruments, okay? And eventually, as, a, as the speed gets turned up and the air gets high, the wind gets higher and higher and higher, eventually all of us fall. And we all topple over, and we all end up in the back wall. So we're all just plastered. It's kind of a funny picture, isn't it? We're all just plastered back here in the back wall. Jesus is still out there standing. He's still holding on, and he's not letting go. What does that mean? That means that he feels the pressure and the power of that wind more than we'll ever feel, right? Because what? We gave in. The first person who gave in felt the least amount of pressure. The one who held on the longest felt the most. Jesus never let go. Therefore, he is able to sympathize with your, even your struggles with sin because he, he, you give in quickly. He never gave in to it. Does that make sense? So he, he's feeling it more in many ways. He never gave in. He never fell over. We all have a pain threshold, right? We all have a breaking point. The amount of pain we endure is not limitless. We can conclude, therefore, that there is a degree of pain that we will never experience. Why? Because our bodies will turn off our sensitivity in one way or another, even if it's through death, before we reach that point. Jesus had no shock system. He had no weakness limit to turn off temptation at a certain point. He kept standing when everyone else fell over. Thus, we have a God who is not just there, but in every sense of the word has been there. Who's gone further into temptation and pain than we will ever experience. That's why he can sympathize with everybody. Listen, you want to talk to someone about what temptation is about? Go talk to Jesus. Jesus knows temptation. He knows and understands our weaknesses to depths that we don't even know ourselves. And get this. Here's the amazing thing. He, he won't roll, your eye, roll his eyes at you <laughs> when you share his struggles with him. He won't roll his eyes at you. Like, he'll listen. He sympathizes with you. Lastly, not only sympathizes, he empathizes with us, okay? Verse 16, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time 
of need. Empathy is the result of recognizing and sympathizing. It's at the heart of the gospel. It's at the heart of love. It's the rare capacity to put oneself into the shoes of another person and, and accurately see life from their perspective and then use that knowledge to meet the needs and help out. So if sympathy is feeling the pain, empathy is doing something about the pain. Okay? You've had a taste of this with people, right? You've had, you've had a taste of people around you who have been truly empathetic to you and you love them, don't you? Because they didn't just say, oh man, I'm so sorry. They did something, right? Maybe it wasn't they couldn't fix the problem, but they were there with you. They sat beside you. They gave you a hug. They walked with you through it. You felt that difference between, I'm sorry, you, 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 you love that idea. You love the sympathy, the feeling that someone has. They feel bad about it for you. But the empathy is a whole other level, isn't it? You, you felt that before, right? You, you've experienced those differences in those two, and that's a difference in that. And that's exactly what our high priest Jesus does. He ascends to the throne of God victorious over the grave he intercedes he defends us he claims us as his own he feels our pain he sympathizes but finally he reaches out and helps us empathy is that help empathy is action taken by jesus himself directly or indirectly right through his angels or through his people either way it's his help because we need a god who does more than just sees us and recognizes us and defends us and calls us his own for that, for that might be a powerful God, that's great, but it would also be a detached God. He doesn't really know what we're going through. We also need a God who does more than just feel for us and sympathize with us, because that might be a loving God, but it also may not be a very powerful God. He just feels for us. We need an empathetic God, and that's who Jesus is. So Jesus sympathizes with us. He feels, as it were, with us. When he empathizes, he feels into us. Empathy involves action, volition, help. Okay, pretend like, um, I heard someone put the illustration this way, if you pretend like you're on a hike and you fall into like a sinkhole or something, right? So you fall down into a hole. Um, and you can't get out of it. And the fellow hiker comes along, right? And they kind of look down there and there you are at the bottom. There's no way of getting out there. And they lean down and they go, oh man, I'm so sorry you got yourself in this situation. Um, here's a sandwich I had packed. Here, take this. I'm going to go see if I can find some help, right? That, that's kind of sympathy. They're feeling for you. I'm even done a little something for you. Empathy is like, they just look down, they go, man, that's ter terrible, and they jump down there with you. Now, they may not have a solution to get out of that thing with you, but, but they're in the hole with you, right? They're down in the trenches with you. They're, they're a, a comrade now. They're down in the trenches. That's empathy. That's jumping into the situation, looking at it from, from your angle, as it were. Take the Good Samaritan story that Jesus told, right? The Good Samaritan didn't just feel sympathy for the man who was dying on the street, right, had been robbed and beaten. He did what? He empathized. How did he do that? He acted to alleviate another person's pain. He risked his life because the robbers very well could have been very, very close by, and he, he still helped out anyway. Look at Jesus with sympathy and empathy to the leper. Mark 1, 40-41, a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, there's that sympathy, there's the emotion. He stretched out his hand, he touched him, and he said to him, I will be clean. You see the action? That's empathy. So there's both of them put together there. And you see how empathy is at the heart of the gospel, right? God, God got involved. He, he didn't just risk his life, he gave his life. He didn't send angels to heal lepers, he touched lepers himself. God came down, he stepped into our shoes, he literally has been there. 
And this makes true, true empathy always, always has an element of risk to it. It's not safe. Empathy is not safe, right? There's a great amount of risk that is involved with empathy. It's hard work that requires personal involvement, and sometimes we want to run away from it, right? I mean, Jesus experienced that in the garden. Let this cup, what, pass. If it is all possible, let this cup pass. But look at what Hebrews 12 tells us. He, he didn't run from it, right? He took the risk, and he moved in. Hebrews 12 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If Jesus would have been merely sympathetic to our plight, he would have watched our struggles from afar maybe, shaking his head, maybe feeling bad for us. If he had merely recognized us and analyzed us, as it were, he would have told us exactly what to do and gave us a path to reach him. But we know that wouldn't have worked either. Instead, God chose to become one of us, die for us, save us, and now help us. That's empathy. The result, the writer says, is that we should do what? We should run to the throne of grace. Okay. I know you just read right over that, but there was never a throne in the history of the world described that way. Okay? If you ever read anything in history, if you watch any shows or anything, like anything to do with a king or whatever, they're never described as a throne of grace. Right? They're described as a throne of power, a throne of right, a throne of rule, a throne of judgment. I mean, most ancient rulers were unapproachable even by their closest, close, uh, their closest people, even their own wife, right? Read Esther, right? I mean, she, was, she almost died, risked her life going into the presence of her husband. Because you just don't approach them like that. that. That's the idea of what was in the mind of the readers. And then they read, throne of grace. <laughs> what? And now because of the gospel, to those who believe, those who have come to faith in Christ, the throne of judgment and wrath, which is that throne of God, the mightiest throne in the universe, has been transformed into a throne of grace where we come by grace to receive grace. We come to get mercy for our past failures, grace to meet our present and future needs. We get mercy to assuage our guilt and grace to strengthen uh, us to endure. So God's steps of empathy have transformed our relationship to him. We can now come to a throne of grace instead of a throne of judgment. But there's more. It says now we come to this. We only come to the throne of grace. We come to it with what? Boldness and confidence. I mean, these are, this is so wild. I mean, this is crazy of what people would have thought about God or a king in general, especially not God. You're going to come to a, his throne's going to be one of grace, and I'm supposed to come with boldness? Boldness here? Confidence? I mean, the terms confidence and approaching a throne were never in the same sentence in any language, any book ever written, okay? They're just not, not, not together. Neither was the idea of confidence and a priest. You have to understand that too, even the idea of a priest and having confidence was completely foreign to them. Why? The Jewish priests were terrified to come to a holy God. The high priest would come before him. And he would come before a sinful people, just like a commoner was terrified to come to a king's throne. And the high priest would come in, and we'll learn this next week. He would go into the Holy of Holies, and he would come into that. He would become petrified. Okay? He was scared to death. He had bells tied around. It was a part of his outfit was bells, and he had a rope tied around one, one, one ankle as he went in. You go, why in the world did he have a rope tied around his ankle? So that if he got consumed and he died, no one's going to go get him. We're just going to pull him out of there because he's meeting God and he may not survive. <laughs> That's, that was how they approached. Once a year, they got to go into that spot, and, and he, had a, he, had a, he had to have a rope tied around his ankle to pull him out in case he died. So yeah, it wasn't anything about to do with confidence at all, right? It was completely terrified. 
So priests went to the presence of God with fear and trepidation. Yet here, we are called to come into the Holy of Holies without hesitation or tentativeness. You know how just crazy that would have been to a Jewish reader? I mean, God's steps of empathy have transformed our relationship to him where we now can come boldly before his throne, not fearfully, but also come to a throne of grace and not a throne of judgment. God's steps of empathy have changed everything. Just go back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2 and 3 where we sinned and, and, and we were commanded to keep our distance, right? Angels were put up with the flaming swords like you can't, don't come near, right? Don't come near. I mean, it's radical. Now we're invited to draw near with confidence. So when Jesus died on that cross, you know one of the things that took place, right? Over at the temple at the same time when he died, what happened to the curtain there, right? It was ripped. It was torn in two. The, the curtain, that, the veil that was separating man from God and God from man was ripped. He opened up access to God who didn't just recognize them and sympathize with them, but empathize. And he's told us, come on in. Talk to me. You need grace? I've got grace. You need mercy? I've got mercy. You need help? I've got help. I feel you. I know you. I see you. I got you. That's now the approach that God has towards us who are his. This is so foreign, so foreign to our personal experiences, right? Our entire lives seem to be based on work and reward, deed and compensation. We fail. We experience the pain. We know we're sinners. We know God is holy. And so we feel like it's not a throne of grace, but it is. Why? Because of the empathy of Jesus, leaving the glories of heaven, taking on humanity and living and dying for us. It's a radical change. Every, at the end of every football, college football season, we witness the revolving door of college coaches, right? You know what I'm talking about? If you follow college, college football, it's like always the case. End of the season, half of them seem to get fired and they just go to another school, right? They just kind of switch places. And it happens every year. The athletic director tells the coach, hey, you're done, you're fired. And they always do like a little interview, press interview, like after it's over. And they always say almost the exact same thing. And it goes something like this. I knew when I took this job, there were no second chances. You either win or you get fired. And we didn't win, so I got fired. That's basically how it goes, right, every time. That's what we know. That's how, that's how we experience life. That's not the way it works with God for those who are in Christ. You can come to his throne day or night, before or after sitting, with sorrow or with rejoicing. It is a throne of grace. You don't have to dress up to come to his throne. You don't have to dress down to come to his throne. You don't have to RSVP. You don't have to perform well. You can just come to God. You just walk in. It transforms your prayer life, right? It radically transforms it because so much of our lack of prayer is the unbelief that Jesus actually cares about what I'm going through. So we don't talk to him because we don't think that he cares. We won't say that verbally, but that's kind of the, one of the things behind why we don't pray as much. He only, we don't, he only wants us to talk to him about the big stuff, right? The big stuff. I had one of the guys that came to Christ out in California, out in Hollywood, and, he, and, he, and it was this thing. Like he really, he really believed that. He's like, I just... He said, I just only talk to God about really, really big stuff. He's too busy. He's got lots of things in the world. A lot, a lot of people have a lot greater problems than me, so I'm just going to go to him with the big stuff. I'm like, no, man, you've you got to go to him with the small stuff. you got to go to him with everything. He's not too busy. The door is wide open. A few years ago, there was a film came out called Lincoln. I don't know if you saw that or not, but one of the stories in that that I kind of resonated with in that story with this is that Lincoln's son had uninterrupted access to his dad, right? 
The door was always open. He could always come in. Even if it was a big meeting, his son would just walk right into the room. Like, he was just always had that access. That's the kind of idea we have with God. It's always there. He's not too busy. He doesn't put you on hold. He doesn't say, come back tomorrow, right? It's not the BMV in the presence of God where you got to kind of take a ticket or the return line at Ikea where you got to take a kick ticket, you know, to get. You don't have to take a ticket. You can just go right in. There's no gifts needed, no payments needed, no passwords needed. Just the blood of Jesus. And you have access to the creator God Almighty. And it will always be a throne of grace because God is a God of infinite grace. I love it. John Owen, old Puritan, put it this way. If all the world should drink free grace, mercy, and pardon from Christ, the well of salvation, if they should draw strength from one single promise, they would not be able to lower the level of the water of grace in that promise one hair's breadth. There's enough grace, mercy, and pardon in one of God's promises for the sins of millions of worlds, if they existed, because the promise is supplied from an infinite, bottomless reservoir. What is one finite guilt before this infinite and eternal reservoir of grace? Show me the sinner who has spread out his sins to infinite dimensions, and I will show him this infinite and eternal reservoir of grace and mercy. You can't tap it. It never runs out. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, even today you think you are the worst sinner that ever lived. Call out to the Lord. Seek him while he may be found. A throne of grace is a place fitted for you. <laughs> Anybody in this room, it's a throne of grace. It is fitted for you. Simply go to Jesus by faith. So as we go to communion... And we go as, a, as believers to take the bread and the juice that helps us remember the body and blood of Jesus broken and poured out for us. Let's remember the ascension. Let's remember his present activity and work. Let's take some quiet time here, just for about a minute of time, just to reflect. And, and maybe you just need to confess to God that you just don't talk to God very much. You know, maybe, maybe that's one today. You just reflect on it going like, God, I, I, I've taken, I, I have not had the right perspective that you not only have the door open, but you want me to walk in. And I've neglected to walk in. I have stayed quiet. I've, act, I've lived like you don't exist, right? I mean, it takes some inventory. Ask God to, to kind of search your heart and know you. Maybe you're going through really deep, heavy stuff right now, and this resonates with you, right? That sympathetic resonance of God, you, you, you go to him and go, God, I, I thank you that you, you feel my pain. You know what I'm going through at a level that I don't even understand, it's, you understand the emotions, you understand the fears, you understand everything I have. Go to him with that, right? First Peter talks about that, to lay our burdens down right before God. Cast our cares upon him because why? He cares for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for an opportunity to look at your word. Thank you for the hope that is given in this passage. It is, it is a wonderful passage. It's powerful. It is unique in many ways. And God, it speaks to our experiences Thank you for not just, Jesus, your, your deity, your godness, but also your humanity. Thank you for taking on human flesh. Thank you for walking our life and living our life that we could never possibly live, resisting temptation all the way to the end, and then dying the death that we should have died to save us. You did it all for us. And so, God, we, we thank you for that. I pray for those here who do not know you as a God of grace. Maybe they're afraid of you, intimidated, they're lost, and they know they are under the, the hand and the eye of the wrath that you have for them because they rejected you. But God, may they know today that if, you, if they seek you, you will be found. 
If they call out to you, you will hear, you will respond. We pray this in all in Jesus' name. Amen.